This is Mary Smigelski, and I'm here with my partner and co-chair of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Practice, Josh Cantro. And it's been a little bit since we have done one of these podcasts, but we want to jump right back into it with some interesting developments here in Illinois. Yes. uh, Thank you, Mary. It's great to be back doing this podcast. And in the past couple of months, there have been some real interesting developments in the BIPA landscape, which we'll talk about today. So one of the most interesting developments is that the Illinois Supreme Court recently denied White Castle's petition for rehearing in the Cothran versus White Castle case. That was a decision in which the Illinois Supreme Court noted that a BIPA claim accrues each time there is a potential violation, in other words, each time somebody uses the offending technology at issue in a particular case. Correct. And so that decision generated a lot of press at the time. And it was, in our view, a flawed decision. We've discussed that on a previous episode. And what happened was that there is a mechanism in Illinois law that allows for someone who doesn't like an Illinois Supreme Court decision to petition for rehearing. And it seemed especially apt in this case, given how BIPA has just exploded the number of class actions, both before and since the White Castle decision, and the fact that there was a change in composition to the Illinois Supreme Court between the time that the Cothrone case was first briefed and then when it was argued. So there was a big push to get rehearing in that case. And unfortunately, in our opinion, the court denied the petition for rehearing. One thing that is a little bit unusual is that there was an opinion that came down from Justice Overstreet, which was joined by the Chief Justice as well as Justice Holder White, dissenting in that decision to not grant rehearing. And it is an exceptionally well-written decision, very sound in law and in the facts of what is going on in the Bible landscape today. It really was. And I want to provide just a few excerpts, uh, if I may, and then turn it over to you, Mary, because to me, what Justice Overstreet did is really encapsulated a decade's worth of pent-up frustration with BIPA as it was originally written and the fact that the Illinois legislature has had numerous chances to fix BIPA over the years. There have been amendments introduced that haven't gotten out of committee. And in our view, and I think in Justice Overstreet's view, the courts have just made even more of a mess of it. So with that said, why don't you talk about exactly what Justice Overstreet said? Well, to that point, Josh, one of the things that the justice remarked on is that the risk of harm that BIPA was enacted to prevent has not materialized in the 15 years since it was passed into law. There, We have seen no cases where there has been any huge data breach. We have seen no cases where there have been actual damages. We have seen no identity theft. Those things simply have not happened. Those things have not happened, and I am critical of BIPA. I'm increasingly more outspoken about those criticisms. But at the time BIPA was passed in 2008, 
There was good reason to be concerned because there was the situation where a company that was collecting biometric information had their assets sold in bankruptcy, including this biometric information. And there was a concern that this information could get out, that it could be subject to data breach, et cetera. And that's when the Illinois Supreme Court stepped in and enacted BIPA. And for seven years, the statute sat there without a single lawsuit. Exactly. And I think that that leads into one of the many excellent comments that Justice Overstreet had, indicating that there is the belief that the initial decision of the Supreme Court cemented an erroneous interpretation of the Biometric Information Privacy Act and subverted the intent of the Illinois General Assembly threatens the survival of businesses in Illinois and consequently raises significant constitutional due process concerns. Those were the arguments that White Castle presented and why the justice would allow rehearing to address those arguments. And that forms the fundamental basis of the dissent. And let's keep in mind that while we're talking about the White Castle case, and while White Castle is a pretty big company, The truth of the matter is, and you and I know this from the cases that we handle, we handle cases for big companies like White Castle. I'm not going to deny that, even bigger. But we also handle cases for small businesses and mid-sized businesses who have been faced and have been dealing with this crippling liability and exposure from BIPA for many years. And there, through their various trade associations, they have been crying out for help from the Illinois legislature and from the courts. And, and the, the legislature and the courts have just basically turned a blind eye to them. And it's not just the crippling potential liability. It's all the attorney fees that they are expending defending these cases and not just cases that might have some type of basis. And I use that term loosely because we've seen a lot of frivolous cases. We have seen cases where companies fall within the clear exceptions, yet they get sued anyway. I just had one recently where the plaintiff's counsel dismissed the case had to go through the whole filing of the lawsuit and dealing with it and the spending attorney fees to get that to actually happen before it was voluntarily dismissed. And then the insurance company canceled the policy for that particular client because they had a BIPA claim. So it's a lot of things that is really harming businesses in Illinois. You make a great point there, and that is that you can sue over pretty much anything. And even if the claim doesn't have merit, a company still has to come in and defend it and pay money to defend it. And there's also another element. It's the resources that the company has to devote to not running their businesses that are diverted away from running the business that now have to go into defending what are increasingly even more frivolous lawsuits. Well, and that's what we were talking about before we started recording. We were talking about the fact that in the two months after the initial White Castle decision came down, the cases that were filed alleging violations of BIPA apparently jumped by 65%, according to a Bloomberg article. Right. And and Justice Overstreet noted that in his dissent. There were some really choice quotes here, but one of my favorites is that he says... The legislature never intended the act to be a mechanism to impose extraordinary damages on businesses 
or a vehicle for litigants to leverage the exposure of exorbitant statutory damages to extract massive settlements. He went on to say, yet this court construed the act to allow these unintended consequences, and as a result, this construction raises serious issues as to the act's validity. What he's saying there, the truth of the matter is, there's only one BIPA case that we know of that's gone to trial, and that's the BNSF case. And we've talked about that on previous podcasts. We're going to cover developments in that case in a little while on this podcast. But what Justice Overstreet says about a vehicle for litigants to leverage the exposure of exorbitant statutory damages to extract massive settlements is true. That is the problem, is that the Act has these liquidated damages provisions in there, which talk about $1,000 per violation or $5,000 if it's intentional. And we see the plaintiffs use that and say, look, if you don't settle, we're going to go to trial and we're going to ask for billions in damages against your company. Basically meaning we're going to put it out of business and own it. Exactly. And most clients do not necessarily have the resources or the wherewithal to say, okay, fine, we're going to gamble with our livelihood and all of our employees' livelihoods and let's go ahead, let's proceed and let's see what happens. I think we're in a better position now because the court has indicated that damages are discretionary, which I think is very useful. I think the other thing that we're finally getting to start litigating these days is that a prevailing party can obtain attorney fees. The language of the act specifically uses that prevailing party language, which in Illinois is not just a plaintiff prevailing, but is actually a defendant prevailing as well. Now, I'm not aware as I sit here of a court having ruled on that yet, but it's something that is coming up and there are some papers that have been filed. So hopefully we should have some decisions on that soon. So let's go to the brighter spot. Let's talk about, you know, some of the bright spots and what we're doing to try to help our clients. On this prevailing party fee provision, how does that work, say, if there is a BIPA lawsuit, it goes all the way through trial, and the jury decides to award $1 in damages to the plaintiff? Who is the prevailing party in that case? Well, and I think in that type of a case, you have to look and decide, is that plaintiff who actually just received $1 truly a prevailing party? If you look at a lot of the authority out there, that's not good enough, that there actually has to be some degree of real substantive recovery, and $1 won't do it. Yeah, so that question hasn't been answered, but you mentioned that this issue is teed up in a few cases. So maybe we'll get, what do you think, a few months away from the first ruling on that issue? I think we are, and I think it will be good to have that degree of certainty, depending on where it comes from. I know that there's a lot of defense lawyers who are making that challenge right now, um, but we'll have to see what the court does. And of course, it's going to depend on the specific circumstance of the individual case, because the definition of prevailing party does have some different nuances to it. So even if a court makes the decision that you know, a defendant is not a prevailing party in one case, that does not mean that a defendant will not be the prevailing party in another. Okay. Well, that's going to be real interesting to follow. And you also mentioned the fact that the White Castle majority opinion does say damages under the act are discretionary. 
the jury doesn't have to necessarily award the $1,000 per negligent violation or $5,000 per intentional violation. Have there been any developments from the standpoint of cases in that area? And I have not seen those yet. Certainly, um, we very much like having that clarification from the Supreme Court. It's been in the statute since day one. And specifically that statute, I'll just read it so it's clear, but it says a prevailing party may recover for each violation. And then it goes through the negligently or intentionally, recklessly, et cetera. So it's been discretionary from day one, but these cases other than the BNSF case have not gone through trial. So once we saw the BNSF case, you know, there were circumstances in that case where the court made some decisions, but the court has now, you know, made some different decisions because they've requested a new trial on damages, which was granted. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And before we get into the uh, request for new trial, I just want to back up again, keeping in mind that it's been a few months since we've done this podcast. The BNSF case is the first case to go to trial. I think it was October, maybe November 2022. And in that case, the jury uh, ultimately found that BNSF intentionally violated or recklessly violated the statute. The question of damages was not put to the jury. It was then left to the judge, federal judge Matthew Canelli, the Northern District of Illinois, to basically just take the number of plaintiffs and multiply. And what he did is multiply the number of plaintiffs times $5,000, which is what is in the statute for reckless violations. And he came up with the two hundred and $28 million award based on that. So that's what he ruled. And then, as in most trials involving big damages, there were post-trial motions. What happened there? Well, so ultimately what happened is the intervening decision in Cuthrone versus White Castle, um, a variety of post-trial motions, including um, arguments that there was insufficient evidence to sustain the jury's findings on reckless and intentional liability, that damages under BIPA are discretionary, not mandatory, which came out of that White Castle ruling, and that the $228 million award violated constitutional due process. So at the end of June, Judge Canelli vacated the damage award. So that was big news in the BIPA world, as you can imagine, to go from a $228 million award against BNSF to vacating that award. And so procedurally, where does that case stand now? So there's going to need to be a new trial as to damages, as I understand it. Okay, so that's going to be interesting to follow. One would also think that there may be an opportunity before that trial takes place for settlement discussions. And obviously, we're not privy to that, but that's just sort of educated guess on my part. It will be interesting to see what happens with that one for sure. No doubt. We don't have a new trial date yet. One of the key issues that we've been following in the BIPA world that did not come up, to my knowledge, in the BNSF case is the constitutionality of BEPA and how it's being applied by courts. Mary, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Well, it's really a due process argument, Josh. Essentially, the legislature's authority to set a statutory penalty is limited, and it's limited by due process. So there has to be a relationship 
between the penalty, which is essentially the legislature exercising its police power, and what the actual penalty is and how that is designed to protect the public. So there has to be this relationship between the two. It cannot be so disproportionate that an individual or a company is being punished and it is wholly disproportionate to what is actually going on. And here we have a situation where there's been no actual harm that has happened to an individual's biometrics because there's no data breach, because there's no threat. And frankly, with a five-year statute of limitations, most of this stuff has been destroyed if it was even biometric to begin with. And now we have a situation where you have plaintiffs who are seeking billions of dollars in damages. Right. So listening to you describe it that way, it reminds me of a couple of decades ago when the U.S. Supreme Court finally got involved in the punitive damages arena. So you had cases that were coming up through the state courts, juries were awarding 50 times, say, compensatory damages as their punitive damage award. So say, um, you had just a personal injury case. I'm giving an example, and someone's injured, and the jury finds that it was outrageous and that punitive damages should be awarded. So they award $50,000 in compensatory damages, but a million dollars in punitive damages. Mm-hmm. And judges were affirming those awards. So what the U.S. Supreme Court said, if my memory serves me correctly, is that you have to use a guidepost, and that is that anything more than four times compensatory damages is constitutionally suspect, and that courts should view those with suspicion and strike those excess awards down. And that's exactly why, even though we read about these huge awards of punitive damages, if one follows them to the conclusion, most of them are reduced and reduced very significantly. And I think that, you know, that also may be, um, you know, an impetus to Justice Overstreet's statement in the dissent on the petition for rehearing, where he stated, quote, when a statute authorizes an award that is so severe and oppressive, as to be wholly disproportionate to the offense and obviously unreasonable, it does not further a legitimate government purpose, runs afoul of the due process clause, and is unconstitutional. That's very, very well stated by Justice Overstreet. He also said at one point in the opinion, in a similar vein, that this court should clarify under both Illinois and federal constitutional principles that statutory damages must be no larger than necessary to serve the act's remedial purposes and should explain how lower courts should make that determination. He added, without any guidance regarding the standard for setting damages, defendants, and class actions especially, remain unable to assess their realistic potential exposure. And that's a great point because, again, the truth of the matter is that Very few cases reach the Illinois Supreme Court. I mean, just a small percentage. The Illinois Supreme Court, except in a few types of cases, is not obligated to accept any case. So the vast majority of BIPA cases are going to be decided by lower courts 
across the state, in all of our numerous counties, and then by appellate courts. And so Justice Overstreet is saying, give some guidance. And that is something that is lacking so far. It absolutely is, particularly when the statute itself has certain ambiguities in it. And even when you apply the law that's out there about the clear statutory construction, you're still getting arguments from the plaintiff's bar in particular saying, no, no, we don't believe that it means that. And using that to extract large settlements and companies and insurance carriers tend to be paying those settlements because it's the cost of defense. And they don't want to go down the path where they're going to be the one to get hit with some $2 billion verdict. And that's unfortunately where the courts have left us today. So it's going to be company or insurance carrier that comes in and says, we have had enough. And I think increasingly they are getting to that point because at the end of the day, you just need one to say, we're going to take that constitutional challenge and we're going to take it all the way. Right. So it seems to me that to be a little bit fair to the Illinois Supreme Court and the majority opinion, that both the majority opinion and the dissent are saying we need clarity. But the majority opinion says it's up to the legislature to provide that clarity. And the dissent, as I understand it, is saying, look, the Illinois legislature has had 10 years to provide clarity, and they haven't provided it. So at the very least, the courts should be doing what they can. Well, and one would think after the White Castle decision came down, when you had a legislature in session, that they could have actually gotten something done, given that the Supreme Court specifically suggested that they do so. I think that in and of itself is very unusual for a court to open that up to the legislature and say, there needs to be clarification here. Absolutely. So, Mary, you were talking earlier about uh, taking it all the way, and that means going to the U.S. Supreme Court and getting the case up to the Supreme Court. Uh, For the lawyers listening to this podcast, they all know how hard it is to get a case to the U.S. Supreme Court. I had mentioned earlier how hard it is to get the Illinois Supreme Court to take a case. The U.S. Supreme Court is even harder. So how does a case that, you know, most of these BIPA cases are in Illinois state courts, how does that get into the federal system and get to the U.S. Supreme Court? In a very convoluted way. Yes. And it probably would be through, I guess, a a certified question, perhaps. That would be my thought. And we've had clients ask us fairly frequently, well, isn't isn't the United States Supreme Court going to do something about this? But, you know, that reflects a lack of recognition of the two streams, you know, the state streams of courts as well as the federal stream. So to get it actually before the United States Supreme Court, it more likely than not would need to be a constitutional due process question and a certified question as Josh described. So depending on how this goes, um, you know, if this type of the legislature does not act and we continue to move forward with these cases, which are now being actively litigated, that's something that very well could happen. 
Well, that's going to be really interesting to follow. Before we go, I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, and that is from, again, noted by Justice Overstreet in his dissent. He cited a report that alleges BIPA violations increased by 65% in state courts in the two months since the court's initial White Castle ruling. So, um, That surprised me because, again, we're seeing so many, probably 2,000 class actions up to this point, and I had thought that we would start to see a drop-off. The time clock cases, how many more of those could be out there? What we're seeing is the plaintiff attorneys are just getting more and more inventive. They're going after photo sharing and facial recognition, and we're seeing a lot of those cases. We have a few here in our office but one of the more ridiculous ones, and this goes to Justice Overstreet's point that I ran across uh, just following the stuff, is that about a week ago, an Illinois resident claimed that Twitter's porn filter violates BIPA. So Twitter puts in a porn filter to stop alleged harm, and yet they get sued. The plaintiff says that since about 2015, Twitter has used photo DNA software developed by Microsoft to detect explicit images posted to the website, which are then tagged by Twitter to prevent them from being seen by users who don't wish to view them. This strikes me as ridiculous. That's an accurate word. And until the Illinois legislature acts, I think that we are just going to see more and more plaintiff attorneys trying to stretch the statute, push it as far as they can can take it. And it's really sad to see. I will note that uh, Elon Musk responded to this uh, lawsuit with a, uh, a poop emoji. And I don't agree with a lot of things Elon Musk does, but I agree with that one. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Well, this has been a lot to cover today. We hope that you have found it useful, and we're going to continue to obviously watch things, follow, and upload podcasts as uh, events develop. And we look forward to coming back with an episode talking about some strategies now that these cases are actually moving forward in litigation. Absolutely. We are defending a number of these cases. We are developing strategies, uh, and we look forward to sharing that with you all. Thank you. Thank you.